Our New Testament lesson is found in the book of 1 Peter. We're reading chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When God, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing in our series on the Ten Commandments. We have arrived at the fifth commandment this morning, Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. It is the commandment that concerns honoring father and mother. In her ethics book on the Ten Commandments, Joy Davidman begins her discussion of the fifth commandment by rehearsing a parable from the Brothers Grimm. I want to read it to you because it sums up such a great deal of what is involved in the fifth commandment. Listen to it carefully. Once upon a time, there was a little old man. His eyes blinked and his hands trembled. When he ate, he chattered the silverware distressingly, missed his mouth with the spoon as often as not, and dribbled a bit of his food on the tablecloth. Now he lived with his married son, having nowhere else to live, and his son's wife was a modern young woman who knew that in-laws should not be tolerated in a woman's home. I can't have this, she said. It interferes with a woman's right to happiness. So she and her husband took the little old man gently but firmly by the arm and led him to the corner of the kitchen. There they set him on a stool and gave him his food, what there was of it, in an earthenware bowl. From then on, he always ate in the corner, blinking at the table with wistful eyes. One day his hands trembled rather more than usual, and the earthenware bowl fell and broke. If you are a pig, said the daughter-in-law, you must eat out of a trough. So they made him a little wooden trough, and he got his meals in that. 
These people had a four-year-old son of whom they were very fond. One supper time, the young man noticed his boy playing intently with some bits of wood and asked what he was doing. I am making a trough, he said, smiling up, looking for approval to feed you and mama out of when I get big. And this brief parable captures so much of what is involved with keeping the fifth commandment. It captures the nuances and shades of it perhaps better than any systematic theology can. Because the commandment is that we not treat lightly those who are in authority, beginning with mother and beginning with father, that we not treat them in a shabby manner. But it is worth us spending time breaking apart the commandment and looking explicitly, explicitly at the question, what is God's claim on our lives in this commandment? And I believe we can develop four major areas of what it means to walk in the way of the fifth commandment. And the first is this. It begins with children obeying parents. We're going to be all over the Bible again this morning because these commandments are developed across the whole canon of the Old and New Testament. And so if you'll turn with me to Proverbs 23, just after the book of Psalms, in verse 22 through 26, we find this developed. Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. And one of the plain and simple meanings of the commandment does lie with children, that they are to obey their parents the authority that God has placed in their lives, that parents are to instruct and teach children to be active, that parents are not peers, that they're not friends, that they are guides who are to instruct their children with wisdom as what it means to walk with God in the world. And you see this particular orientation that we're not simply giving them rules to obey and they're not arbitrary rules, but from Proverbs 23, we see that the goal is for the son or the daughter to give their heart to the parent. He says, my son, give me your heart. And he would lead him in the way of wisdom, what it means to live well in God's world and what it means to believe and trust in God. That's the total context. And that the child is to submit themselves to that kind of authority, to that kind of parenting, to come up under it gladly. And so to obey is not simply to be in line. It's not simply to have good manners. It's to inherit a wise way of life. And learning to honor God begins in this relationship, this primary relationship in honoring our parents. Now, as young parents, Melissa and I began to develop household rules we wanted to make it simple for our kids, and so we wanted to make it memorable. So we decided that the fifth commandment was a good place to start, 
And so the first part of the rule was trust or respect and obey. So I didn't get the rules right. Respect and obey. That was the blanket statement, that everything fell under that, that you were to respect mom and dad and you were to obey what they asked. That worked for some time, and then we realized that there were some deficiencies. So we needed to add to the rules. Respect and obey, and so we added on right away all the way. We were having some issues of obedience, and that that obedience not only needed to be rendered to us, but it needed to be done right away, and it needed to be thorough, okay? Everything that we asked you to do, respect and obey right away all the way. Then as we matured a little further down the line, we began to note that there were motivational issues, and uh, that this obedience wasn't always done right away all the way, nor was it done with a good heart, and that this was certainly part of obeying parents and the Lord as well. So the command grew one last time, respect and obey right away all the way with a good attitude. (laughs) And that this kind of became the capsulation of Colson family ethics, that this is your duty as a young child in the house. This is what God is asking you. In fact, this will be the first signs of your taking him seriously. The first evidences of your faith in Jesus are going to come through as you work out this relationship with us. That was the way we talked about it. And then the commandment um, with our second child grew, if you know him, respect and obey right away all the way with a good attitude and have fun (laughs) became the punctuating mark. (laughs) That there was tons of fun to be had, that mom and dad's rules were given not to prevent us from having fun. They weren't given in order to steal life. They were given in order to bring boundaries into life. And there was all kinds of freedom to be had. And so it is with God, it is with God for us, and it is with parents for children that our commands and our expectations of them are not to steal anything from them, but it is to lead them to flourish. And we find that these children have a definite place inside of God's church, inside of the community that he is constructing through Jesus, and that they are to give their hearts to us. To obey and honor, and this is where it begins for them, in their earliest of days, learning to respect and honor parents is the first stage of respecting and honoring God. Now, it's important for us also to consider that this is developed in the New Testament. If you turn to Ephesians 6, you find the fifth commandment appearing in the New Testament. It's children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. It's interesting and very helpful to have the fifth commandment reiterated because sometimes people will ask, Chuck, why does Christ church involve children so much in what we do corporately? And I like when people ask that question, because the answer is right here. In the Old Covenant, when God was working with Israel, children were assumed to be a natural part of the covenant family. And so they were involved in worship. They were circumcised on the eighth day. It was a big deal for children to be a part of everything, because they were assumed to be the next generation of the covenant family. And what assumption does Paul make as well? after the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
that children are in the covenant family. He has commands for them, that they are to honor their mother and the father. They can't be members of the covenant and receive commands. And so children are a natural part of our family's life. And so when they scatter out noisily, it's not just cute and sentimental. We're so excited for them to be a part of this. And when they come back in noisily, and they may ruin your, your taking of communion, if you have a little snotty one next to you, rejoice and give thanks. It's exciting that children would be a vital part of our community's life. It's foundational. It's bedrock that children are a part of who we are and that our children are learning to obey their parents and also learning to honor God through that. And so this is where the commandment begins. It begins with children obeying parents. But it also involves parents nurturing children because it's not just a blanket statement that parents are in a position of authority, therefore they are to be obeyed. But you see in Ephesians 6 an important qualification in verse 4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You find this similarly in Colossians in chapter 3. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And so there, is also, there are also implications here for parents, that not only are children to obey, but there's a reciprocal responsibility on the parents' part that we be parenting our children in the Lord that we be gentle and oversee their Christian nurture, that we cultivate them and grow them. Several years ago, I decided to start a garden, and I began to study and read about how to best begin the garden. I was, of course, focused on getting the right kinds of plants for my habitat. And the further I began to read, though, I began to note that the most important thing was not the plants and the fertilizer, that actually all the science and all the study that was done was done with regards to the soil, that that was what was essential. And this is what parents provide for their children. It is the creation of a home, the right context, and the nurturing of the child. It is the soil in which the child is planted and grows and learns an orientation to the world. And parents, this is our responsibility in light of this fifth commandment, that we are to nurture them in the, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In the Lord, we are to command them. In the Lord, we are to direct them, not giving them arbitrary moralism, but teaching them what it means to be wise. Not that, they just, that we command them to give their hearts to us, but that they would want to that they would be so moved to do so by following us. A couple of months ago, I was talking with a friend who's been involved with junior high youth ministry now for over 20 years. And it was when we were looking at hiring our youth director, Alec Cotton, and so I was doing some investigation, and I wanted to ask my friend, of 20 years' experience, what had he seen that was most effective? And he has stewarded some very large youth ministries. He's been in charge of hundreds of kids for two decades. And he said to me, he said, Chuck, 
The most effective thing that I've ever done is had groups of small, small groups of young guys and met with them regularly. And it is those young guys who are being nurtured in Christian homes where faith is being taken seriously and Christian responsibility is upheld. Those are the kids who I still am in touch with and their faith is mature and vibrant. He said, what is crucial is that the homes that these kids are being cultivated in are sincere. He said, that is the biggest challenge to my youth ministry. The interesting thing was that the church in which he was serving is many people were drawn to the church because of what? The youth ministry. And he was seeing that the key important function was the home. And parents, we cannot delegate the important task of raising our kids in the faith. That yes, we can have help and assistance from things like children's ministry and teaching that goes on there or from youth ministry, but the primary responsibility for nurturing the child and cultivating them in the faith lies squarely with us, and we have to feel the weight of that. That this is ultimately not a burden, but it is a responsibility that belongs to us. Because if Jesus is just one commitment among many other commitments— then our children will inhabit that same kind of faith. But if Jesus is the commitment that gives guidance and direction to all our other commitments in life, then our children will learn to walk in that way. And this is what our responsibility is, is to guide them into that path of life. And so the fifth commandment speaks not only to the kids, but also to the parents. The third piece of this, of God's claim on us in this commandment, is that it requires that children care for aging parents. This is the interesting thing about being a child. It's not time-sensitive. It's a relationship. We are all children. We all have parents. We are all subsidiaries, people who've come from others. And the fifth commandment doesn't stop when you reach 18 years old. It doesn't stop when your children are out of the house. But the fifth commandment abides for us, and we have to listen carefully, because it especially involves our duties with our parents when they are in their declining years. In the Old Testament context, this was the social security system that you did move in with your children, that they provided for you, that in the harshness of life where you could be left with nothing and be destitute, that your children were to provide for you. And so you find it reflected throughout the Old Testament as an assumption that undergirds Israelite society. If you turn to Proverbs 23 again, in verse 22, listen to your father who gave you life, And do not despise your mother when she is old. You see the context there of caring for mother when she is old. And by implication, father there. Or you can turn to chapter 19 in verse 26. He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. 
And that the idea here of doing violence is further than just physical violence. That it is to treat someone lightly. It is to treat them poorly. To run off your mother who is in need. And then if you were to look into the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 20, he mentions that in speaking against Israel and their current practices, he inveighs against them for not honoring father and mother and caring for them. And then he goes on to enumerate how the, the, the people were also not caring for the widows and the orphans and other people, the sojourners. And so it's clear that it was a matter of justice and that the weak and the disenfranchised, the most vulnerable of society, were not being cared for well. And so, friends, it's important for us as a community to hear this, that to be pro-life means to be pro-life through everything, from the beginning to the end, completely committed to honoring father and mother, caring for them, bringing our best to make sure their needs are met, that they know our love and respect for them, especially when they are inconvenienced by our declining life. The the parable tells it very well. It can be enormously inconvenient. Many of you have walked this road and are currently walking it. And you do it so well. And when you do it well, you instruct all of us in following the way. It is so vitally important for everyone to see it. To see that you are your parents' social security, that you're caring for them, that you're loving them that you're taking them down into death, which all of us must meet. And in doing so, you're teaching everyone who's watching. Because the bottom line, as the son says, he observes what his parents do for the old man. And what was he preparing them for? He thought that was right. And so let's do the most honorable thing that we can do for our parents. Let's overwhelm them with that honor. And we teach future generations to do the same. And so children care for aging parents. The fourth piece of this, of what it means to invest ourselves in this commandment, God's claim on our lives, it invests us in honoring authority in general. It's interesting in the book of Deuteronomy, we find that the commandments are built out pretty much in a successive order And that this fifth commandment is treated in chapters 16 through 18 of the book of Deuteronomy. It's built out where then authority is found in judges. It's found in the king of Israel. It's found in the priest. It's found in the prophets. And so Israel was to be submissive to those offices. That they were to honor them and they were to respect them. And so the section expands on what their duties were. The interesting piece is that in expanding, each of those offices were told how they were to carry their authority. So it wasn't just that Israel was to respect them, carte blanche, but that the authorities were to work and operate in a way that was pleasing to God. And so the kings, the prophets, the judges... They were to focus on the exercise of their authority amongst the people of God. Again, the reciprocal relationship at work. The people submitting and those in authority exercising that authority well. Patrick Miller, commentator on this, says, 
this about it. He says, the primary thrust of the commandment concerning parents is that authorities are to be honored. And then he writes, the primary thrust of the statutes and ordinances that explicate the parents' commandment is that authorities are to be worthy of the honor they receive. That this is the double-edged sword. That in the fifth commandment, it puts authorities on notice that authority is a stewardship from God and to be exercised with great care. And it puts everyone on notice that we are to submit to authority and to be grateful for them. Those who take on those burdens of leadership, that we want to honor them. But we all know that this is a great challenge. And why is that? And it typically is because we've all seen and experienced and tasted bad authority. Several years ago, I was with my oldest son. We were visiting my parents in eastern North Carolina, and I grew up going to a river there. And close to my parents' house, there is a creek that winds back for miles bringing drainage out to the, to the large river, the Pamlico River. And so I've grown up on jet skis running back into this creek. It has hairpin turns and just goes on and on and on. And there's nothing more delightful than taking a jet ski through there at 45 miles an hour. It's so fun. I've done it thousands of times. And so here I have my six-year-old son with me on the jet ski, and I say, we're going to go have fun. We're going to fulfill the fourth part of the Colson family commandment. And so we go all the way into the back part of the creek, far as you can go. It gets very narrow. It's still very deep. We turn around. And so then I promptly, after turning around, floor the jet ski, and we head into the first hairpin, which is one of the best ones. It goes all the way back around to the left, and then you have to dip to the right. And so my son is obviously very nervous with what's about to happen. And uh, then as we come into the first curve, um, the steering on the jet ski goes out. If you were in a wide expanse of water, that would not be a problem. But as I said, this was a very narrow expanse of water, so there wasn't a great deal of time to think. The sides of the creek are all crowded with trees and crepe myrtles hanging over, and so it's just a snake haven. And so all kinds of things are flashing through my mind as I realize the steering's out. I take off the gas as much as I can, no steering, and uh, so I grab Sim around the chest and I lay back and boom, <laughs> into the crepe myrtle. There's a stick in my leg after, <laughs> after the crash. We're bruised and pretty beaten. Crank the jet ski back up. The steering now works. Something had gotten lodged in the, um, in the bottom. And we go home. We're beaten and we're bruised. We're a little sore. My pride is slightly hurt. That's not a hard thing. And so here we are. I go back home and we were living in Washington, D.C. at the time. And my knee was hurt. It didn't keep me from walking. But I had to ride the metro to work every day. And so I was around hundreds of people. I'd cut the nerves in my leg. And so it was kind of a sensitive situation. And, and I remember people coming up to me, and it was very common to get bumped and hit, and I had become very sensitive. Obviously, I didn't want to get hit. I didn't didn't want any further damage. And so I was limping around, shielding people away from me, trying to keep them from injuring me further. And friends, that's what happens to us when we get hurt by bad forms of authority. 
we become extremely sensitive. And when there is actually no threat, what do we begin to do? We are still pushing people away. We're scared that they're going to do it to us again. I was scared someone else was going to jab me in the leg, that it was going to hurt again, that this thing was so sensitive. And that is the hardest thing for all of us because there are abusive forms of authority. It's in the church, it's in the world, it's in the workplace, it's in the home. And that God's command to respect authority is no sanction on abusive authority. And there is still a command, though, for us to learn to respect, to have views of authority rehabilitated when we have been violated. Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, has important words for us. He says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, and that that is the kind of authority that is on display and being exercised in the church. That is what we ascribe to. That is what we aspire to. This is what we want more than anything. Of course, working it out imperfectly. But each of us needs to rehabilitate our view of authority. What it means for a godly authority to be over us. Why would we listen to God's commands and demands on us to honor Him and to honor everyone around us? And it's because our great King, the one that we honor, is also a servant. That He's given us everything. That He doesn't hold back And so we have a completely new relationship to authority that children can graciously submit to parents who are seeking to serve them and teach them to be wise. That parents can see their responsibility to be a very concrete and tangible authority over their children and to graciously nurture them and cultivate them, creating good soil where their children mature. That adult children caring for parents going down into death, that we see it as an honor. That we give them honor when no one else will. When society would shut them out and tell them that they're not important and to put them away where no one will have to see it. That we can give them honor. And that we can honor authority in general. First Peter builds this out for us beautifully. Those who govern, we are to honor. Friends, we can do that only because of the gospel. Because we know what good authority looks like. And we know that all authority in our world is ultimately accountable to Jesus. And that no authority will get away with pulling punches. That they don't get away with evil. Because our Lord Jesus sits over it all. And he brings it all into evaluation. And so we can take the fifth commandment. And we can take it up in faith, even on the mo- its most difficult and strenuous of days. And we can obey it. God helping us by his spirit. And knowing that his authority is good, that it's wise, and that it's trustworthy. Let's ask for his help. Father, you call us to honor And you are the honorable one. You are worthy of praise and devotion. And you have done everything on our behalf in Jesus to serve us. 
May we see the nature of that authority, and may we exercise our authority in the same way. Whatever your calling is upon our lives, whether as parents or in the workplace, that we would lead by serving, that this would be the exercise of authority. And teach us what it is to submit to authority as well, especially if we struggle with that, where it's hard and where we've been violated. May we learn not to be overly sensitive. God, rehabilitate us, work within us, direct us and guide us. And may this community be a place where everyone is honored, from the youngest to the greatest, from the oldest to the least. Give us that kind of church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.